This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have uh, Jeff Giese. He is the author of It's Time to Embrace Mimetic Warfare and the author of How Mimetic Warfare is Transforming Cyber War. So today on the show, we are we're discussing mimetic warfare and its role in sort of information warfare and sort of how we understand how this type of warfare is conducted. Um, so Jeff is an entrepreneur, and he has, his focus is uh, media and marketing. And so we, we wanted to bring him on the show to give us a, a unique perspective, I think, uh, we tend to only focus on national security analysts or security analysts, but um, in our experience, you have to have a sort of multi-layered approach of people of different experiences, different approaches, and um, sort of bring their viewpoint in into uh, how we view a security issue. So with that, uh, I want us to welcome Jeff Giese. Thanks, Dana. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, it's great uh, to be on the show. Um, let's start off with um, some definitional, um, a definitional question. Um, in, in your view, what do you consider to be mimetic warfare? What is, what is this concept? Yeah, so mimetic warfare is just a fancy word for propaganda conducted through primarily through social media. Um, so that's an easy way to think of it. A more precise definition is that Medical warfare is competition over narrative and perception and ultimately behavior in the social media battlefield. So um, think of a terrorist episode like what happened in Orlando. And in the wake of that, what was the narrative? Was the narrative this is a gun rights issue? Was the narrative that uh, the, the guy who shot up all the people at the gay bar in Orlando was homophobic and is internalized homophobia? Or was it related to Islamism and uh, and that sort of thing? And after that terrorism incident, you could see all these competing narratives battling with each other. That's kind of mimetic warfare. And we see it show up domestically. We see it show up internationally. We saw a ton of it through the election on both sides. Um, and so one, one way to think of it is it's kind of at the intersection of trolling propaganda and information operations. Um, yeah, and that, the title of that paper um, that you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the subtitle, the actual title is Hacking Hearts and Minds. So one, another way to think of mimetic warfare, it's like, how do you hack people's hearts and minds um, or, or win them over um, through uh, information primarily in social media and online? So in terms of, I mean, would you consider this relatively new then in, in the sense of its, its evolution and use? Um, you know, information warfare and information operations have been with us since the Cold War. I mean, so... I, absolutely. So there's there's nothing really new here. It's, it's really an extension of things from the past. What I would say is new is that the information environment that we're operating in is much more global. 
much faster and much more participatory than ever before. So that has changed. And, and that means that, in my opinion, the kind of tools and ways of thinking of the past really need to evolve into this new information environment that we're in where, you know, anybody can, uh, where, you know, there's no space between continents. Anybody can get on their computer anywhere and, and you know, in effect become a propagandist um, and, uh, and have global reach and where ideas and information um, globally intersect. So it's, it's kind of like the competition of narrative and ideology and culture that we used to see on a local level now has really been globalized. In terms of where do you put speed, it seems like you know, you're, you're taking these sort of older concepts of information warfare, information operations, but the speed is so much more different. I, I just think about sort of you know, my day-to-day of looking at Twitter, looking at Facebook, whatever, and it, it almost seems like the data and the information on those mediums is always changing. So how, how do you bring in the speed and the sort of celerity and just constant change? on these mediums. Yeah, I mean I think it's like it's the information loop, the speed of the velocity of it is so fast and it shrinks any distance. So think of the terrorist attack that happened in London recently. I mean immediately it's caught on cell phone video, uploaded to Twitter, shared. There are multiple hashtags, you know, pray for hashtag pray for London, you know, and and it just happens all in real time. So it's, it's pretty incredible. I mean, and it's easy to take for granted, too. I mean, last year I, I went on a vacation to, to Myanmar, to, to Burma. And I, at the time, I was following on Twitter. There I was in rural Burma. And when I could get Wi-Fi, I was following on, my, on Twitter this uh, student protest uh, campaign in South Africa called Roads Must Fall. And... I watched it evolve. I watched it spread to Oxford, England. And then I watched it sort of intermingle with the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. and start to adopt some of the same language. And so it, 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 was, it was a weird feeling. Like, at that point, I was like, wow, you know, here I am in remote Southeast Asia watching these global movements spread and intersect and evolve in real time. And it was like a brick on my head that just kind of made me appreciate how, how globalized um, our information environment is in, in ways that I don't think we fully understand or appreciate yet. So then what do we consider to be the medium of conflict here? I mean, is it, is it technical? Is it you know, just looking at Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, et cetera? Or are we... Is it more sort of meta than that? And we're looking for that the narrative itself is the, is the battleground. Yeah, so the battleground is really narrative perception and behavior. So another way to think about that is the battleground is really our hearts and minds. Um, it's public opinion. It's, it's behavior. Or, you know, for example, with the controversy in the, in the U.S. election, voting behavior, Right. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, another way to think of it is, is a cognitive battle. Who shapes our mind in the ways that we perceive and look at the world that, that drives everything else that we do? And so that's kind of the, the real battlefield or the goal. And, and the battlefield is our information environment, particularly social media, which, 
you know, as you know, more and more people are spending more time there globally, um, and it's increasingly shaping the way we make sense of the world. Um, and and then the combatants, you uh, you had asked, um, you know, I think you asked like who who are the combatant combatants, excuse me. Um, and what's interesting about that is really anyone, and that's the thing, like anybody can engage in this. And in many cases, we don't even know who we're dealing with because because of anonymity. Are they state actors? Are they non-state actors? Are they domestic? Are they foreign? Um, so really, anybody can participate. And it's a highly symmetric information environment um, that anybody can play in. Interesting. So in terms of, I mean, we've, there's a lot of research out there that sort of points to that, you know, when we're on Facebook, we only really interact with a select group of people. But when you interact on Twitter, it's, it's a much more open and sort of, you know, it's, it's a much more open and sort of random environment, more chaotic environment. So when we just to use Twitter and Facebook as an example, I mean, would Twitter be sort of more, you know, pardon the, the sort of cheesiness, but is it more fertile ground for this type of conflict versus something closed off and sort of more of a bubble like Facebook? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, um, I would say yes, because of the factor of anonymity adds to it. Um, and it, it does feel more Wild West than Facebook, whereas Facebook, most people have their identities tied to it. So that creates a certain accountability. Um, so, yeah, I think each different platform is used in different ways. And, and, and to, me, to me, Twitter feels particularly Wild West. Awesome. So in terms of maybe viewing this in a traditional conflict way, you know, is what you're proposing, is that inherently, does it favor the offense in the sense of, you know, when you're on Twitter, you know, it, it's more about how much content you produce, you know, at what times you produce it and, you know, to be on the offense, to be active um, versus a sort of more defensive position, which, you know, when we were going through the research for this conversation, we had a hard time sort of even sort of conceptualizing what a mimetic defense would look like. So, I mean, sort of walk us through, like, what is, you know, what, what, what is considered offensive? What is considered a defense? Yeah, I mean, first, I mean, my agenda is, I have a lot more questions than answer. My agenda is to get people having conversations about these issues and maybe changing the way that we, we think about these things. And, you know, in particular, my, my most recent paper um, one of the things they talked about is how cyber war in, in the U.S. and in most NATO countries has really been defined around hacking computers, networks, and infrastructure, and and really overlooks the information psychological aspects, not, not hacking hearts and minds, which is the title of it. So my agenda is really to get us thinking more and talking about these issues and and understanding them them uh, better. I think there are a lot of outstanding. Um, you know, issues to work through. And in terms of offense and defense, uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I do think that mimetic warfare, in, in a, when it's weaponized, favors insurgents. It, it, it's easier to tear something down than it is to build it up. It doesn't mean that's not possible either. Um, but I think that's, that, that, that's, that's one way to quick answer. In terms of defensive mimetic warfare, um, 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and <laughs> frankly really relevant question right now. I mean, if people are, you know, the people who are concerned about Russian influence on the U.S. election, for me, it's interesting to ask, like, what can we learn from this? Like, let's say there there was influence campaigns. How, what can we do to prevent that or address this in the future while still respecting our democratic values and institutions and our free speech and so forth? Um, so a couple areas to look, you know, defensively. It, it may not be a direct defensive you know, mirroring tactics. It might be something like, for example, we deplatformed a lot of Twitter, or Twitter deplatformed a lot of ISIS accounts, right? So ISIS, rec- you know, recruiting and messages through Twitter and other social media platforms has gone way down um, because they've been deplatformed. <laughs> that, of course, doesn't work for you know different groups that use free speech and so forth. But that's one example of a. Of a defensive measure. Another example is um, we actually, I believe, we recently bombed the main propaganda center and killed the American, allegedly killed the American editor of Dubik magazine, which is like the you know one of the ISIS magazines. And so we actually bombed a propaganda center. So arguably, that's defense against mimetic warfare. So I think you have to look at it from uh, a spectrum, a spectrum of angles. Then. You know, social social media platforms can make tweaks to their algorithms and, and so on and so forth. Um, I think the risk there is that that could get politicized very very easily. So it's it's definitely a thorny thorny problem. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, I think everybody wants to live in a fact based universe as much as we can, and I think we want to be able to trust information sources when you know when they arrive. Um, so I think I think it's an ongoing conversation. So in, in terms of I want to maybe um, bring in a, a sort of infamous example from the 2016 election, um, which is sort of the use of the meme for at least to attack Hillary Clinton was the main one, at least that comes to somebody who's apolitical like me, was emails, you know, the use of. Um, that she used the email server, I think, is what the meme sort of um, was built on. Versus during the election, it, you know, you, you did have this issue of, you know, uh, Trump's supposed relationship with Russia, and you did have a lot of news stories, but yet emails stuck. So what I'm interested in is when when we look at that example, why was, you know, during the election, why was sort of the usage of emails much more successful versus Trump's relationship, you know, with Russia. And then post-election, it seems like that meme sort of stuck that, you know, Trump, you know, in its various forms of Trump has, you know, a personal relationship with Putin or he's, you know, friends with Russia or some, you know, some form of it. So in terms of sort of offense, what, what makes a meme sort of stick and what makes it resilient like that? Well, I think I think we're talking apples and oranges there, but it, but uh, just to break that down a little bit, um, I do think Trump in particular was a meme machine during the election. I mean, think about like little Marco, low energy Jeb, sick Hillary, even the MAGA hats themselves are a meme, right? They're so um, emblematic of his campaign, and there are so many different elements of of this Trump campaign that I think it was highly mimetic 
in a way that I haven't seen other campaigns, you know, be that much uh, mimetic as Trump's campaign in the past. I mean, Obama had those iconic hope, hope, hope uh, posters or change posters. So I think that that was, you know, an example from Obama. But um, yeah, I think Trump was, you know, quite the meme machine, so to speak. And of course, there is a whole social media army to, you know, which was incredible in terms of designing and spreading those online. Um, in terms of how memes spread, there's actually a whole science. There's there's meme theory, and um, and there's a concept called meme fitness, and it's based on the four life cycles of a meme. And don't quote me on this, but it's something like you know first memes stick, and then uh, and then they um, spread. I should I should open up the the actual four. They're in my paper anyway. There are four life cycles of a meme meme but it's basically I, i'm not i don't remember all of them it's basically they stick they spread and they hold its form and then there's one one other um but it becomes quite mathematical and you can see how you know as an example the the meme fake news was very effective in the level of that when somebody hears it it sticks with them they understand its meaning um it's also very effective in that it spread but in terms of holding its shape and form and conveying the same meaning, maybe it's been less effective because, you know, the mainstream media introduced that meme. And then, you know, as you probably recall, Trump kind of used it back against the mainstream media. So there, there's a whole science behind um, meme fitness and even social physics, which is using big data to analyze uh, social interactions and, and effectively the spread of memes and ideas and behaviors and so forth. Um, so it, become, it can become quite uh, scientific when, when you get into it. Um, just, to, just to go to your last point about the Trump-Russia narrative, I mean, I think that you're right. That narrative is emerging now, and, it's, and I think that this is a perfect example of mimetic warfare because I think certain people on the left are really trying to use that narrative to delegitimize Trump. Um, and there's, there's this, there are people on the right saying, no, Russia is no big deal. No, Russia, you know, you guys are just crazy. Then there are people on the left saying, you know, no, he colluded with Russia and they're really trying to push that to delegitimize Trump. And then I think there are the rest of us who are just trying to get the facts and really understand what's going on. Um, but I don't know that that's a meme per se. I do think that that's an example of mimetic warfare by the left in this case is trying to go on the offensive to delegitimize Trump. And, um, you know, I think there, I haven't seen any hard evidence of campaign collusion. I think there's some circumstantial evidence and it's probably worth investigating and researching more, but I personally, I think it's too early to draw any, um, any conclusions and it feels pretty irresponsible to me too. So in, in before we sort of switch over to more theoretical issues, what would you consider the role of outsiders to be in um, in this sort of warfare? Because, you know, fundamentally, you know, the platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, etc., they're public. So anybody could use them. So, you know, you know, during the campaign and, and now we're hearing a lot about you know, Russian botnets, you know, Russian Twitter bots. Um, I think Chelsea in her work deals a lot with how ISIS 
you know, spreads its message on Telegram and on um, Twitter. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, what do we consider the role of outsiders to be in this type of warfare? Yeah, I mean, first, it depends on how we define outsiders. So in the context of the U.S. election, that would probably be non-U.S. citizens, right? And then there are state state-supported actors and non-state actors. Um, and uh, so I, th- I think it, it's, it's interesting and there's, there's, I think there's a huge distinction. So I think outsiders play a huge role and, and there's maybe no such thing as an outsider in a way because effectively anybody with a computer who's familiar with their culture and stuff, so forth could participate online in social media just like any other U.S. citizen could during the election. Right. So what does it actually mean to be an outsider is an interesting um, question. And they can start memes, dig up new information to bring forward, dig up, push false information, amplify information that's out there just like anybody else. And so I think this is a factor for democracies that we should be conscious of and and aware of. Um, And I also think there's a distinction between you know, this is a vast global information environment. So people are going to agree and disagree across foreign uh, territories. So, for example, uh, um, people who were skeptical of the U.S.'s recent bombing in Syria. Uh, So my friend Mike Cernovich pushed uh, a hashtag Syria hoax, which expressed skepticism over, um, over the Syrian chemical or, or the bombing that Trump ordered in Syria. And then there was all, there were these articles saying, you know, actually that hashtag came from Russia. You're, you're spreading Russian propaganda and so forth. Um, and he didn't know anything about that. Um, maybe, maybe, so there's a difference between when interest and information converge and when there's actual collusion. So it's, it's this giant, giant swirling nonlinear information environment that is hard to distinguish where it's hard to distinguish between outsider who's an outsider and who's not and who who has good intentions here and is operating good faith and who's not and that's kind of what makes it scary and interesting so i want to sort of um seg you know segue into the problem of how do you create a grand narrative I mean, if if the medium is so fast, so varied, and to a degree, the Wild West, how do you create, you know, a singular or maybe even multiple? I mean, do you like how do you create a narrative? Like, for instance, the example I'll use is during the Cold War, you know, the West was associated with democracy, with capitalism, and then you had this other narrative of of communism, Um, but now. I mean, how do you even go about producing a grand narrative, even if you can? Well, I think that's that's a great question because the Cold War, you know, there there are ideological memes, right? So communism versus capitalism in the Cold War was effectively those are two ideological memes, and the words that. So this is where I, I mean, I think this is one one way my views have started to evolve as I've researched this is you know there's mimetic warfare at the at the day-to-day level and basic issues, but then there's also mimetic warfare at the grand narrative or ideological level where, um, you know, 
for example, social justice is a meme, and on college campus, that that means certain things and and is used to push for for certain agendas and so forth, for better and for worse. I'm not trying to make a moral judgment here. Um, liberal democracy is a meme. Somebody might cynically say that we use that meme to pursue our own interests, you know, and that they aren't always liberal or democratic. Um, you know, I think that, I, I think looking at the world globally right now, one challenge the West and, and America faces is that I don't know that we have a strong ideological story right now or grand narrative in the way that we did during the Cold War. It's very clear then. Now, you know, we're in this era where I think there's some confusion over what it means to be in the West. What is the national identity of America? And, and it's almost this post-liberalism that we're in where a negative ideology where we stand for, you know, no ideology in some sense, um, where everybody can be whoever they want to be. Uh, whereas our adversaries, like in the Islamic world, Islamism is a very strong ideology. Russia and, and Dugan, they're kind of developing a, a pretty strong ideology. We may not like it or agree with it or whatever, but it's something people can kind of latch onto that gives them a frame and view of the world. And right now it feels like the West and America is, is missing that, that grand narrative. And um, so I think it's an interesting question and, and issue. And, and right now, just to give you an example from the kind of right side of the political spectrum in this country. Um, so with, with the rise of Trump, you know, this is a new type of Republican. I've kind of written about that a little bit before, but what, what do we call that? Do we call that Trumpism? Do we call that nationalism? You know, all of these terms have baggage, right? Trumpism makes it dependent on Trump as a person and, and he may not reflect what we're actually talking about, right? Um, nationalism carries kind of historical baggage and may not be accurate either. So what do we call this emerging, um, you know, Trumpist, Trumpist ideology that's, that's emerging on the right? That's, that's an example. What, what do we brand that ideology? What's the grand narrative? I mean, I think there's sort of a grand narrative emerging there, but maybe not, not a brand or, or a, a clearly defined ideological meme. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, going back to Russia and, and sort of Putin and, and Dugan, I mean, in, in the sense of is chaos like a narrative then? Because it seems like um, in some of the analysis that we've, we've read, I mean, it, you know, the fall of communism and sort of the rise of this new political order in Russia. And, you know, you can call it fascism, you can call it whatever, but it seems like outwardly and sort of in its sort of warfare against the West, it seems more devoted to chaos in the sense of, you know, we're going to support candidates that, you know, you know, want to pull out of NATO or we're going to support candidates that, you know, weaken sort of, you know, the liberal order. So, I mean, does a narrative always have to strive for order and construction? I mean, can it be chaotic well, and can it be sort well, of... I think you're, con yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the, I, I would be that it's not a narrative, that's a strategy. So chaos, at least as I understand it, is a strategy of Russian information warfare. And 
that's not their grand narrative, but that's a strategy to uh, what what I've heard has been called an anti-hegemonic strategy, which is by sowing chaos, you can help, they can de-articulate, kind of divide and conquer, cause chaos, confusion, and, and weaken the West and weaken America's self-identity um, through chaos. So I would say that's a strategy, not a narrative. Okay. Um, so in, in terms of sort of countering that then, how do you, in your view, how do you create a narrative that is strong enough to stand up to a, a chaos strategy? I mean, is there... Is there some way to to you know construct a narrative that is resilient enough to resist that, or do you just have to sort of? Yeah, you know, yeah. I think that's that's oh, that's the question. I mean, then that's kind of what I'm obsessed with, and why I just interrupted you. Sorry, <laughs> but I mean, if any of your listeners, and this is what I see as a, a project, almost a generational tr- challenge, if Russia is trying to de-articulate the West and American national identity. I think we need an effort to re-articulate the West and American national identity and build a strong sense of who we are and what we stand for. And I think that's that that's more about us than it really is about Russia. Russia's maybe just an excuse for us for us to do something that we need to. But yeah, I think that um, having a sense of social cohesion, social trust, and a shared shared values and shared sense of national identity. Personally, I believe that's that's quite important. Um, you know, others I'm sure disagree or may disagree. Um, but I think that's really, uh, essential for us in order to be able to defend ourselves against the chaos type strategy. Otherwise, you know, if we're a pretty fractured society and we're, we're all in our own little worlds, then it's easier to splinter us up and, and, and kind of divide and conquer us and get us to bicker and fight with each other and weaken our resolve. So I want to sort of switch over to a more controversial aspect of mimetic warfare, and that's sort of the sort of the tactics that are used. And I'm going to frame this. Um, the big question is going to be, you know, when it comes to mimetic warfare, information warfare writ large, where do we draw the line in respects to freedom of speech? You know, you, these tactics have you know included you know uncurated dumps like wikilinks dokes you know the sort of the private and data of citizens uh the usage of sort of fake news and sort of um fake news and conspiracy theories you know where do we what is the line here and you know how do we define it yeah i think that's that is the clear question which is where do we draw a line between free speech and an actual acts of warfare and it gets really murky. I mean, let me just give you an example. Let's pretend like, and I call this the attribution challenge. So let's pretend like, an, uh, we'll just pick on Russia again. So let's pretend like a Russian oligarch, billionaire who's close to Putin, but not Putin, um, not, you know, decides to fund uh, a guy in, in, you know, Northern California who has a PR firm, to fund an influence campaign to encourage CalExit. The breakup of California. And this guy in Northern California, an American guy, runs an influence campaign supporting CalExit. What is that? <laughs> is that an act of 
national security because this is a kind of a Russian guy is close to Putin, encouraging the breakup of California through American proxies? Or is it just a PR campaign? <laughs> so the lines get really murky there, and, and it's, it's kind of confusing. And so I think there's a general attribution issue here when it comes to metawarfare of how we define these things. And there are a ton of legal, bureaucratic, ethical, moral, you know, uh, doctrinal issues to work through on these issues. So I'm not going to pretend like I have all the answers. Um, but, you know, uh, just some other kind of issues, you know, for me, I'm very passionate about free speech. So I, I really err on the side of, of supporting free speech. And I hope that, you know, our, our marketplace would develop new systems of trust networks and systems of surfacing fact and trusted information um, that will evolve. I'm confident we'll get there. There's a kind of a structural inf change in our information environment that's causing a lot of this, which I can speak to in a minute. But um, yeah, but let's take an example like WikiLeaks, where um, so they're, you know, like leaking the Vault 7 CIA uh, material, that's like the tactical, that's like the mimetic equivalent of a tactical nuke, right? Like they're putting out all this information um, all at once. And, th and that's, that's free, free speech, right? But does that change if we believe that they're uh, colluding with Russian actors or does it not? I mean, there are foreign interests, you know, Carlos Slim owns part of the New York Times. Does that mean that's a foreign interest? And that so it gets pretty confusing of how we, how we draw these lines and distinctions. So I think there are a lot of, and then there are laws against domestic propaganda and so forth from the past. Well, the internet doesn't necessarily recognize borders. So I think there's an ongoing conversation that we need to have about how do we navigate these issues uh, legally and otherwise, and, and even morally. Um, and you know, some questions that come up, just as an example, sometimes what's effective if you're wearing a propaganda hat, the hat of a propagandist, what's effective may not be what's actually true and vice versa. Um, you know, so for example, from, from the election, you know, I think there's a lot of room for legitimate criticism of Hillary Clinton around the Clinton foundation, you know, and possible, you know, uh, pay, pay to play and that kind of stuff. Um, if you try to sell that, it doesn't really stick. Whereas, you know, in the Podesta emails that were leaked by WikiLeaks, there was talk of, you know, this one performance artist and spirit cooking became a meme, right? And spirit cooking was sort of, in my opinion, less substantial of a criticism, and yet it kind of would stick with the public as a way to denigrate uh, Hillary Clinton. So there are tons of issues um, when it comes to these topics, and I'm just trying to I'm just trying to get them discussed and try to get the right questions out there. Um, so then my question is, what happens when you have something like Pizzagate where it's, you know, it's, you know, it's been for, for the most part, it's been debunked yet arguably contributed to somebody going into this pizza shop in DC with a loaded weapon. I mean, what is, I mean, that seems to be, you know, a clear line well, that might have, that was crossed. Well, I, I disagree. Well, well, let me, let's talk about that because it is an interesting case study because I, I mean, I agree with you in that um, I haven't seen substantiated, verifiable proof of 
whatever pedophilia going on in Comet Pizza or whatever the Pizzagate issue was, I did see calls to investigate it. Um, but frankly, we're seeing right now the same thing from the left when it comes to Russia. We're seeing, you know, Lawrence Tribe, this Harvard Business School professor, literally today, earlier, just retweeted, you know, a conspiracy theory from Luis Mensch about Trump going to Russia with a video offering to, like, sell his support or something. Like, that is the pizza gate of the left right now. So I think that both... I think that um, conspiracy-type theories emerge on all sides of the political spectrum and that, that we need to be maybe not assume that the other side is more guilty than our side is when it comes to this stuff. But I, I, I want to live in a fact-based universe. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, hey, there's some weird evidence here. Let's look into it. That's different from saying this is actually true and, um, and, you know, effectively putting out fake news. And look, I think we're all burned. The ultimate example of this was weapons of mass destruction. And we were all burned by that, right? I mean, you, were you burned by that? Yeah. The entire American public was, I mean, I was against that war from the start, but the entire American public was sold a bill of goods on weapons of mass destruction that turned out to be fake. And dissent was squashed. It was uncool to even question that. Just like when we, you know, with the bombing in Syria, it was sort of uncool to say, hey, where's the proof of this chemical attack? Like, help us understand stand this. So I think, it's, I think it's on all of us to try to live in a fact-based world and to push for more verifiable facts before making decisions, before latching on to narratives, even though we might, you know, as humans, we want to latch on to narratives that validate whatever points of view that we already have. So then I, I guess this leads us to a sort of broader question is what happens to our democracy when conspiracy, you know, fake news, whatever you want to you know call it becomes sort of – I don't want to say prevalent, but you know, the example I've, I've used on our previous show is that when you go to Google and you use sort of Google, Facebook, Twitter as the main arbiters of your sort of consuming data – is that on certain Google searches, the first 10, the first you know five or 10, the top searches are lead to fake news, you know news that isn't substantiated by by anything. And then you know you go to Twitter and it's you know Twitter is as you know is sort of the wild west. You can you know you can read you know whatever. But I mean to circle back, what happens to our our democracy? What happens to yeah, I, I think it's a big issue. I think it's an interesting, I think it's a real challenge for our democracy, especially, you know, the name of that paper most recently was Hacking Hearts and Minds. Like imagine as neuroscience comes of age, as behavioral analytics come of age, you know, you know, that might become, it's conceivable that that really could become, you know, the ability to manipulate people's, you know, public opinion and that sort of stuff could become more and more of a threat to our democracy on top of everything you're, you're talking about. And um, I'm, I believe that we can work through these issues. I believe that the inform, uh, I believe in the information marketplace, you know, as wild west and crazy as it is, it is a marketplace. And I do think that we see the truth emerging now in some ways more efficiently than in the past. Uh, I think we we see a lot more original sourcing of information. So 
rather than having stuff filtered through the media, we're able to see the actual live feed. Um, and, and I think gone are the days where we have two or three media entities telling us what we should think and believe in a very asymmetric information environment where we didn't really have the tools to even challenge their narrative, right? So um, whereas now at least there is a marketplace where if there is a fake news story that somebody else can find, you know, other pieces of information that refute it and debunk it. I mean, it's not damage can still be done in the interim. I get that. Um, and that those are kind of the issues to work through, but I'm not totally pessimistic about this means the end of our democracy. I, I do think it, I do think it's a major concern and, and something for us to all talk about and think through and work through. Um, but I believe we'll, we'll be able to. So I want to, so for our last question, um, what do you do? I mean, it, it seems like if, if we're dealing with narratives, with symbols, with ideas, and that, you know, the original expression goes out onto these sort of Wild West mediums, what what happens when we, when somebody co-opts your narrative and they begin to work with that narrative in such a way that is detrimental to the original idea. So well, I, I know that sounds sort of convoluted. No, that's mimetic warfare 101. I mean, it's all about hijacking the symbols of whatever's in culture or, or symbols of your adversary and um, in buying into those. I mean, I guess, so I, I think that's, that that's just part of the game and i think we'll see we see that now i think we'll see more of that you see that with hashtags all the time where somebody will will start a hashtag that they want to mean one thing and then and then a bunch of people will come tr take it over and then it will come out meaning something else and that's just an example of you know what i would call like mimetic you know basic kind of mimetic warfare happening just zooming out for a minute i mean i think if you look out at the world um you know, nobody's going to challenge the U.S. conventionally. The U.S. is pretty strong conventionally. So people will come at us, and we and there's nuclear weapons that are out there, right? So conventional warfare is probably unlikely. So if you're if you want to gain power, you're probably going to look for asymmetric type of warfare and uh, type of warfare that that may not even be seen as warfare directly. And right now, I mean, I think that that information warfare and mimetic warfare is is one of those areas so we'll see you know i i once tweeted you know the future future of war is is less you know fewer bombs and more art i mean i think we'll see public diplomacy become weaponized in in new ways and the soft power um you know uh, in type of type of warfare happening and in some ways that's very scary um in some ways it's i guess better than you know, a nuclear bomb happening. Um, but right now, you know, we're, we're able to, we have the infrastructure, we have the budgets and all set up to go drop bombs in Syria pretty easily. But if we wanted to do a denigration campaign, you know, in Syria, um, like I use in, in a stupid example from my first paper is like hashtag ISIS is gay, which is just a stupid example, wouldn't be effective. Um, but that would cause all kinds of political issues, and we don't really have in legal issues and bureaucratic issues, and we don't really have the infrastructure to do that kind of thing. And and so our, our resources are allocated, you know, much more towards conventional warfare versus 
ideological warfare. And, um, and I just think it's something we need to think through a little bit uh, more. And, you know, especially in wake of the questions about this last election, I think now, now these issues are more in the public consciousness and we can have a more, uh, hopefully a more honest um, and constructive conversation about how to, how to improve things going forward, both militarily and defensively for our democracy. So I want to end the show. Usually we end the show with uh, the guest giving us a, a sort of final comment, a sort of something to think about and to chew on before we, we leave. So um, with that, you know, sort of give us the, give us your final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I don't have one. Can you, can you, can you help me out here? Like with a question or something? I'm trying to think. Um, do you feel the United States is effective at medic warfare as a foreign policy concept? No, I feel like um, I feel like the United States is ineffective at medic warfare. In some sense, it's structurally disadvantaged at it because, like I said, it fav- probably favors more insurgent type efforts and smaller, scrappier players. Um, I, I, it feels like our institutions and way of approach. And again, I'm not. I want to be clear. I'm not a national security or foreign policy person. So I'm speaking out of some, some ignorance here and just from my perception as a perspective as an outsider, but it feels like we're very much mentally and institutionally set up in the cold war still. And that we haven't really wrapped our heads around, you know, these new threats that are emerging and new, new types of warfare and geopolitical shifts that are happening. And I think even non-state actors versus state actors like you know like again going back to WikiLeaks, like what is that is that is that an act of warfare is that an act of journalism like we don't we don't know so i think there i guess what i would leave us with is there are a lot of questions for us to answer and i think the only way to get there is by talking about these issues more and um starting to educate ourselves and open our eyes to what's happening here and and just have honest conversations, um, and uh, and roll up our sleeves and and find find solutions. Awesome. So with that, uh, this was uh, Jeff Giese. Um Remember to check out his papers, which we'll have links to the Hacking Hearts and Minds: How Mimetic Warfare Is Transforming Cyber War, and his other paper, which is It's a Time to Embrace Mimetic Warfare. So, um, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, of course. This is